This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. It's my pleasure to share a very different podcast with you today with literary historian Sophie Oliver. Sophie talks about the author Jean Rhys and her most famous work, Wide Sargasso Sea. Sophie also shares her own intimate and unique experiences researching Reese's life and work through a dress that came into her possession quite out of the blue. I love chatting to Sophie and I hope that you enjoy the podcast as much as I did. Sophie Oliver, welcome to Hidden Histories. And I'm so looking forward to speaking to you about this subject because we're going to talk about Jean Reese and her famous novel, White Sargasso Sea, which is my favourite novel, as I've just been expounding to you off this call, and also some of the material culture surrounding her and and this this book as well. So White Sargasso Sea is, a, is an incredibly vivid and compelling novel. It's all about Bertha Mason, who's the first wife of Charlotte Bronte's character, Mr Rochester. What do you think compelled... Jean Rees to to write about this? Well, we know lots from her letters, you know, when she was in the full flow of drafting the novel, she explained that she wanted to redress something that was missing in Bronte's novel. She had a deep respect for Bronte. She was very careful to say that she, you know, she loved this book, Jane Eyre, you know, that Bronte was one of her revered novelists but kind of cautiously and respectfully, she disagreed <laughs> with the way that um, that Bertha Mason was uh, presented in that book and wanted to tell her backstory to give her, Antoinette as she is in Wide Sargasso Sea, a life. She was writing a novel which was a, a kind of form of a sort of speculative history, I suppose, a kind of excavation of a past that she didn't think was given to the character in the novel to kind of flesh her out. She calls her, I think, a, a, a paper tiger or a paper lunatic. I'm forgetting the exact phrase in the letters. But really notices, you know, as we can all do now, th- thanks to Reese in a way, the sort of two-dimensionality of, uh, of the character in Jane Eyre. She wants to flesh her out. And of course, she also fleshes Rochester out. She also gives him a kind of psychology, tries to figure out what his motivations were. She's psychologising both of them and their situation as newlyweds and placing them in the context of history and and the society of the time. And there's a politics to that, a feminist politics, I think, although she would have denied that for sure. And, you know, uh, a kind of a 
post-colonial politics, we would say now. Because yeah. her heritage also informed her take on, on the novel, didn't it? Yeah, so Reese is from Dominica in the Caribbean. The novel's set mainly in Jamaica. And she she identified, I suppose, in some way, or if not identified, of course, it's difficult for us to know Reese's exact feelings about this, but there's a sense of empathy, I suppose, a sense of empathy of a, a Creole woman, and that's to say, a, um, you know, a woman, as Antoinette is, born in the West Indies, but white, just as Reese was. And Reese felt that that was a kind of a betwixt and between sort of position to hold, coming from the West Indies, but being white and being the descendant of slave owners. And she she wanted to kind of to to write that into this figure of Antoinette too, I suppose, that kind of in-betweenness um, and a sense of not belonging, um, which is a kind of hallmark of Reese's novels, I suppose. Yeah, there's definitely a, um, a sense of displaced identity within it. And even just discussing the landscape, there's chunks of the book where they're talking about the, the rolling hills of England and the, the chill of England, but then also the heat and the vibrancy and the colour of Jamaica. So, yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really powerful, I think, within, within the book. That sort of leads on to my next question, which is really how much of Jean Reese do we see in the book and in the character of Antoinette? It's such a hard question. I think we're kind of schooled in some ways to read Reese's novels autobiographically because the three novels that she published before Wide Sargasso Sea are so heavily influenced by her life, I suppose. You know, she draws on her life a lot. So it's a difficult question. I mean, I, I think we can go so far to read it, you know, to, to read um, Reese's own experience into it. But of course, she's also, you know, in all of the novels, to a greater or lesser degree, you know, transforming that experience into something else, into fiction. So, um, yeah, I'm always cautious, I suppose, about reading it autobiographically, especially because I suppose historically Reese and other women are often sort of they're tied quite closely, aren't they, aren't they to, to, to their life experiences? And sometimes that can distract us from the ways that they're doing things with that experience, kind of turning it into something else entirely. So um, I suppose, yeah, there's a political reason for me to be cautious about, um, about, about reading, reading her life directly behind it. And the, the, the imagery within the novel is very powerful as well. So um, even the, the objects, the possessions, the furniture the clothing, it's all very beautifully described and it's almost palpable. Do you think that that connects to her interest in in objects and fashion? Yeah, she loved beauty. She really thought it was important, you know. She talks about illusion, which I, which I um, often, which I sort of associate with her interest and, and love of beauty. She talks about the value of illusions and how illusions kind of keep us going. They, they give us something to hope for and to love. She loved Paris because she thought it was beautiful. She loved clothes because she thought they were beautiful. Even in late life, the woman who gave me the dress that I own, that I'm sure we're going to talk about in a minute, um, that belonged to Reese, who was a friend of Reese's when she was an elderly woman and was one of the women that kind of cared for her, helped her when she, when Reese was living down in Devon, in North Devon, um, this woman helped her decorate a little shed that she had in her in her garden. And their letters, which I've seen, are, are kind of full of details about, you know, chopping at Habitat was new, for instance. So they so um this woman was buying things, cushions and throws and things for Reese to decorate this little space of hers. Incredibly important. And that's 
you know, that's evident, registered in the in the feelings and the experiences that she gives to her characters too, that clothes give them shape, give them substance when they need it, when they're falling apart, create a routine for them. There are also ways of connecting with other people. There's often in her novels, there are, this is less true of White's, I guess, I see, but in the European, so-called European novels, there's often scenes of women trying to connect with other women through objects, through things that they're buying, through shopping through a hat or, or getting her hair done. So they're powerful kind of psychological tools and social tools, I think. And, and part of that is because they're beautiful and appealing, I suppose. She's very interested in desire, I think, Reese. And obviously, we, you know, we want these objects often, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the fact you have one of her dresses. I think this is amazing. And we, we were just saying off the call, you know, when you're talking about owning something that belonged to the person or in of history that you study is phenomenally unique that's not something that a historian really gets to claim what is the story behind you obtaining this dress i know you sort of briefly talked about it but how did you come across it and, and importantly as well what is it what does it look like okay so i'll describe the dress a little bit first perhaps and then i'll tell you how it came into my possession um so it's a really unusual dress um, as well, which kind of makes it even more special, although I'm sure any object that I own that belonged to her would, you know, be kind of talismanic for me in some way. It's it's called a house dress. That's the type of dress that it is, a house dress. It's probably, I've been told by curators at the, at the V&A, probably from the 1910s. House dresses were slightly less popular by that point. They kind of start in the 19th century, middle class often women at home dressing up indoors are kind of supposed to be comfortable clothing that you can wear that sort of has a kind of measure of, of sort of aesthetic beauty and often they're very beautiful and quite elaborate sometimes. Reese's isn't as elaborate as some of the other examples that I've seen but essentially yes comfortable a comfortable outfit to wear indoors but sort of a little bit fancy I suppose. <laughs> and, we could all do with one of those right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and hers is cotton. Um, it's a heavy cotton. Does It's got a small inner bodice, so it's got some structure. And then it wraps around at the front. So there's a V at the neck, if you can imagine that. And then it ties at the waist. Uh, it's got sleeves to the wrist. And then it has a train, which is sort of one of the most remarkable things about it. It's got this long train, um, which is bold and sort of surprising. And the train is kind of matched in its surprisingness by the print, which is graphic, floral, very over-the-top floral, and it's red and blue and white. And I say that the print is Orientalist, so it remind, you know it feels like it's kind of from the East somewhere in a kind of generic, sort of slightly stereotypical version of, of the East. And I was given it in, on the top floor of Waterstones Piccadilly in a tote bag in 2014 by a man who I had become quite friendly with, actually, through my research. So at a certain point in my PhD research, I kind of felt like a bit frustrated with only reading books in libraries and I guess it was a kind of, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a kind of sticking point in my research. I was sort of starting to kind of drift a little bit and I, and I wanted to talk to people. And I researched early 20th century women writers mainly, very few of whom have kind of living relatives or any means really that you would kind of chat to anybody who was alive. Except that Reese lived quite a long time. She didn't die until the late 70s. And of course, her career only really took off in the 60s. So at that point, there are people kind of interested in her work. So I contacted quite a lot of people who either wrote 
profiles about her in the newspapers or this man who made a documentary about her. And I and I got talking to him and he still is very interested in Reese. And after a while we'd known each other, he said, I know somebody else who is this woman who looked after Reese when she was when she was elderly and was a friend of hers. She owns a dress that Jean Reese used to own. It's in her attic and she doesn't know what to do with it. And she's tried to give it away at various points, but she hasn't been successful. I suppose it was a different time, maybe in the early 80s when she was trying to give it away. She, it, you know, the museums didn't want it for whatever reason. So my luck, you know, fast forward however many years that is, 30 odd years later, and it's handed to me. So I've been using it, I suppose, since to kind of think about Reese, think about her work, to think about my relationship to her. Because as soon as you own something that's got real here, you know, it's folded up in a box beneath one of my beds, you know, it's in the spare room. <laughs> And it's real. So it's sort of it immediately it makes you reflect on your relationship now in the present moment with with her past. So it's been an incredibly sort of poignant and productive thing for me to own, I suppose. How has that process of reflection, what have you felt that you've landed on by having that object? So in some ways, I think having an item from the past, especially, I think, clothes, brings the past back you feel at least like you think that you can imagine that past because you can see a relic of it you know you can see this kind of index of that part of the past so it's led me to think about the kind of you know material and social aspects of of the texts that not that she wrote at the time because she as I said it's probably from the 1910s and although Reese in her autobiographical writing she says that she started writing around that time she didn't publish anything until the late 20s so, but she wrote uh, her novel Voyage in the Dark, for instance, is about that time. So it's helped me think about representations of women, for instance, in that novel, sexuality, because I read it as quite a kind of sensual sexual dress in some ways. You know, it's meant to be worn indoors, but it's very elaborate. So in some ways, it's taken me back to, to the time of, of her life and her writing and kind of encouraged me to think about the things that I can know about the dress. I then take to the work and so to see how they fit together. But almost more suggestively for me, it makes me think about the things that I can't know. <laughs> because I can't know what she really... I can't even know for sure that she wore it. it there are cigarette burns on the bodice, um, and it's a little bit worn on the train. She told the friend who gave it to me that it was her favourite dress. So there's evidence that, you know, that she wore it and that she, she loved it. But I don't know for sure. And I don't know how she felt when she wore it. You know, in some ways, it's kind of both a piece of her past and a sign that I can't ever access that past properly. And so in response to that, my response has been to kind of think about history, I suppose. Think about how we write history. Think about what's my relationship to women that I'm writing about 100 years ago. Think about what I bring to it. Like, what do I want from her, for instance? You know, what do I want by reading her texts in particular ways? Why am I interested in her? What does she give me? And the dress has been a sort of a method, I suppose, for doing that, a way of thinking about history, not just writing about history, if you see what it is. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Yeah, and informing you about a particular time in her life as well that is quite unique I mean you've managed to sort of hone in on a particular period so you say the dress was made in the 1910s you've managed to sort of recreate an idea of Jean Reese in at that time of her life what did that look like because am I right in thinking that she was in London at that time yeah so she's in London and she's She's in the chorus line of various theatre shows, for instance, in this period. So one of the things that one of the first curators I showed the dress to said, first of all, that she thought it was aspirational bohemian, which is a kind of phrase that's that's stuck with me. So, you know, that colours the way that I might think about how, you know, what she's doing at that time. She's kind of on tour in various places around around England She's got probably one small bag she described having and a, and a, and a kind of a trunk. So, you know, perhaps it's coming out of that after she comes off the stage. She's back in the boarding house that she's staying in. She's also, we also know that in 1914, she's going often to a club called the Crabtree Club, which was a place where artists and models and journalists hung out. Paul Nash, the artist, described it as a coarse place. He said that pinched harlots hang out at the Crabtree Club. So, you know, there are ways in which the dress kind of fits into this idea of Reese, who is not part of a bohemian scene of London modernism at this point, it must be said. But she is, you know, she's going to these places and it contributes, I think, to a sense of, you know, what what her life might have been like at the time. But equally, I can't shake the sense that this is conjecture. It's, you know, it's sort of speculation and I'll never be able to sort of recreate it, I suppose. You must have this feeling, Helen, as a historian, <laughs> yeah. you know, all the time. I mean, I'm a, I'm a literary his, historian, I suppose, or I'm a cultural historian. So in some ways, I'm, you know, the idea of recreating someone's life feels incredibly hard to me. And the dress has become a symbol of that in a way more than it is a way to actually carry out that recreation. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can identify, 
I can identify to, to a certain extent because my most recent book is a narrative history. So it's very much about trying to create a story of mm. somebody's life and it's readable and it's it's exciting. You're trying to get all the twists and turns. And I open my book with um, a surcoat that's allegedly belonged to the, the subject of my of my uh, biography and you know a I don't really know if the circuit <laughs> did, did belong to him and b how does that inform me about his life I mean there's it's one tiny fragment that might not have even really belonged to him so it's sort of it is tantalizing but it's also representative of the fact you still just can't know at all and I think in a way, you have to be quite um, lyrical and literary with your with your view about these things if you're trying to create a representation, because so much of it is representation, isn't it? But what is amazing is that you're you have created a very tangible link with being able to hold and and um, immerse yourself within the sort of backstory of this dress. I mean, one certainty is the fact that it belonged to her and the fact that you share that very physical link I think is 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 as I said before really quite unique yeah and I think what you're saying is exactly how I have approached it in a way it's an imaginative way to kind of create scenes I'm really influenced in this by um, Virginia Woolf who was you know brilliantly articulate about write about writing history about taking a different approach to history. She wanted to invent a kind of different critical method that didn't do it, as she said, how the textbooks did it. And especially when you're dealing with what she called obscure lives, you know, when you can't know things, those obscure lives almost kind of are more fascinating, more tantalising, as you say, because you're asked to kind of, you're invited to kind of create these scenes. And I suppose the dress is brilliant at doing that. You know, it's it's connected to place because that, because of where she was, it's, it suggests all sorts of feelings to do with, you know, the aspirational bohemian is about kind of desire, about what she wants to be as a young woman in her mid-twenties. Trained as an actress, trying to get onto the stage, doesn't really kind of make it drifting. You know, the dress is a way into all those sorts of feelings, you know, to try and build that picture, I suppose. It's also, I would say, and this is kind of diverging from Reese herself in some ways, but still related to her, a way for me to kind of connect her personal circumstances with kind of bigger stories. You know, the dress is cotton, so it immediately makes you think of empire and the history of slavery, which Reese, of course, is very interested in throughout her novels, particularly in White Sags SOC, but it's present, I think, in all of her novels, you know, that her own kind of intimate connection to to slavery you know through her through her heritage in the Caribbean so you know it's it's this kind of brilliant jumping off point to personal psychological emotional elements that connect to these bigger kind of social political stories as well yeah and as you say it's a way in which is exactly where every historian has to start their analysis but what's so amazing is the fact that you're able to do that with something that is so so tangible that that she Mm. actually personally owned where can people read more about your research and has the dress ever gone on display have you ever lent it to any kind of 
um, exhibition because I know that you worked on an exhibition at the British Library. Yeah, I worked on an exhibition about Reese at the British Library a few years ago, and there wasn't room, sadly, for that for the dress in that display. It was a it was a, a small display that was tied to the British Library's holdings of of Reese's certain manuscripts and then um, some periodicals and, and books, but also to some manuscripts of Bronte's. So that it was quite focused. There wasn't it wasn't the place for the dress, and I think I would like to to give it to a museum at some point I think uh, I haven't quite finished with it writing um, and when I have I think I will give it away because it would be nice for people to use it and people you know more expert than me in terms of dress history to think about it in some more detail but um, I have written about it and published about it already there's a book that was published last year um, about Wide Sargasso OC that's called Wide Sargasso OC at 50 it was it came out of a conference that was celebrating um, 50 years since Wide Sargasso OC in 2016 but there's a, a piece about the dress which I use in, in that chapter to read Wide Sargasso OC in different contexts and then I have, an, have a radio piece on Radio 3 airing in April I think um, which is a, a very personal piece about um, the dress and what it's sort of meant to me in my life I suppose. Yeah you kindly shared the preparation for that with me and so um, for everyone who's listening I would highly recommend you look out for that so you say it's that's going to be airing in in April. Yeah, in April. I don't have a date for it yet. I just recorded it this week. Yeah, so there's it's um it's sort of slowly dripping into things that I'm doing and will be in the in the in the book that I'm that I'm writing about women artists and writers and clothes and then at that point I think it'll be time for yeah, to for it to be more public. <laughs> oh, thank you for for sharing it with me and with the podcast and for sort of speaking about your experiences. Thank you so much Sophie for coming on. Really a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Helen. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 